First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's a short verse, and so I'm just going to ask you to stand here for a moment with me as we read this, this short verse together this morning and consider this verse that describes the resurrection and the death and the suffering of our, our Savior. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is what Peter writes. It's a very profound, though short verse. He says, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You may be seated, and as you're seated, let's pray and ask that God would continue to bless our time of worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. We think of his death and resurrection in a special way today. His death and, and resurrection is an ever-present reality for us as we consider that apart from his resurrection, we would have no hope of having a new life and being able to experience reconciliation with you. But Father, this morning we, we celebrate it in a special way as we, we come together. Perhaps we're with, with people who haven't uh, been with us in quite some time. We're being able to fellowship his family in a way that we haven't been able to experience for some time. And so we're especially excited this morning as we consider that. And we pray that you'd help our hearts to turn toward you, help us to be renewed in our relationship with you and encouraged. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom is the Hebrew word that we often translate peace in English. Shalom, we generally translate peace in English, but I'm not sure that peace fully conveys the, the deepness and the theological depth of this word shalom as it appears in Scripture and as God describes peace. In other words, sometimes whenever I might use the word peace in English, in our cultural context, you might simply think that I mean the cessation of, of hostilities. Uh, two groups were at war with one another, and I say they were, they were fighting each other. They were working, you know, country A was trying to annihilate country B, and they were at war. They were trying to kill each other, and, and then they came to terms of peace. They, they stopped fighting. Uh, you and I were in a disagreement. There was a tension in our relationship. We were trying to undermine each other, and, and now we're at peace. We're, we're not actively trying to destroy each other. But the biblical concept of peace goes much deeper than simply the cessation of hostility, the, the stopping of a fight. Biblical shalom, biblical peace, describes a relationship that used to be characterized by hostility, but, but now is characterized by, by harmony, by reconciliation, by tranquility, a unity, a oneness in a relationship. In our fallen world, you don't need to go very far in your life to find examples of relationships that are marked by a lack of shalom, a lack of peace. In fact, as you think about relationships that you have in your life this morning, you probably don't need to go very far until you can think of examples of relationships that are not characterized by what Scripture would describe as, as peace. You can think of relationships in which there's some bitterness, 
there's relationships in which there's shame, there's a, a, an estrangement, there's a relationship that, that should be characterized by, by oneness, by tranquility, by peace, and instead it's like you're strangers with one another. Maybe it's even someone that you're sitting close to this morning, or, or you can look across the room and say, boy, that person and I, we, we're not actively trying to kill each other right now, praise God, but it's not characterized by peace by tranquility, by harmony. In fact, if you turn on the radio and just randomly select a, a song, most likely that song is going to somehow describe some relational distress between two individuals. Most of our music deals with relational distress, with, with relationships in which there isn't shalom, which, in which there isn't biblical peace. I was thinking about that this last week, and I was reminded of a, a Jars of Clay song. And in this Jars of Clay song, it's called Mirrors and Smoke. And it's about these two individuals that desire to have a close relationship. The man especially wants to love this woman, but as they think about the relationship, he realizes that the relationship has been characterized by, by distress, by a, a lack of love. And there's this one part in which the, the man and the woman are singing to one another, and they're kind of talking about how they've failed to love each other the way that, that God's called them to. And there's this one line that I think is especially tragic. The man says, I want to lay my life down. And then the woman responds, but I know you never will. There's a lack of shalom in our relationships with one another, a lack of harmony. And what's true in our human relationships is symptomatic of what's true in our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. If there's one relationship in the universe that should be a relationship characterized by closeness, by peace, by reconciliation, it should be our relationship with God. And yet, this morning as you sit here in your nice, comfortable chair at Five Points Theater, and you think on our Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sundays, you think about your relationship with God, would you say that that relationship is characterized by harmony? Would you say that that relationship with God is a relationship that's characterized by closeness, by shalom, biblical peace? Or would you have to say, would you have to acknowledge this morning as you come in and as you think about your relationship with God, would you have to acknowledge, you know what, my relationship with God is not a, re a relationship of closeness. My re relationship with God, I'm not even sure I have a relationship with God. It's, it might be marked by, by anger at God or, or at least estrangement from God. For all you know, God may exist, but your relationship with him is, is, is estranged. This morning, I want to talk with you about how to be reconciled to God, how to be brought back into a relationship with your heavenly Father. This morning, as we look at 1 Peter 3.18, we're not even going to look at the entirety of this verse. We're going to look mainly at, at one phrase. And this phrase deals with a, a thing in, in theological terms we call the, the atonement. And the atonement means how God reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. The atonement means how God brought us back into relationship with himself through 
the life, death, resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to look mainly at this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous, that you see there in 1 Peter 3.18. And we're going to look, first of all, at the idea of the righteous. Who is the righteous? What does it mean that he's righteous? And then we're going to look at the unrighteous. Who is the unrighteous? Is it, is it the guy next to you, sitting next to you in the pew, or is it, is it you? And then what does the phrase altogether mean, the righteous for the unrighteous? And how does it relate to this idea of being brought back to God? We're going to look at the righteous, then we're going to look at the unrighteous, and then we're going to look at that entire phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let's first look at this word, the righteous. He says here in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. What does that mean, the righteous? That word is a word that means to be in accordance with God's standards. In other words, you and I don't determine what righteousness is. Righteousness isn't some sort of subjective term like, I'm righteous because I'm, I'm better than this person over here. So I, I compare myself to person A, and I'm more righteous than them. So in comparison to them, I'm righteous. Or I, I look at person C and say, well, I'm not as good as that person, so I guess I'm unrighteous. That's not how righteousness works. It's not some sort of subjective term. On Friday morning, I woke up, and I was freezing I was as cold, I think, on Friday morning as I've ever been in my entire life. I got up, and, and later, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just shaking. I'm so cold, and Whitney gets up, and she's going running. I said, sweetheart, uh, I'm cold, so I know that you're going to be cold. You want to bundle up because it is so cold out there. And she looks at me, and she goes, it doesn't seem that cold. I said, trust me, it's freezing. So she bundles up, and she goes out for her run, and, and uh, I just... I bump up the heat, and the kids come downstairs, and, and they're in their shorts and, and t-shirts. And I'm like, guys, it's cold. You guys need to bundle up. And I, I bump up the heat. And at, at some point, uh, I decide to make myself a cup of tea, which I don't, I don't drink tea every morning, but I wanted to get warm. And so I'm, I'm, at some point, I'm making this tea, and I'm over the tea kettle allowing the steam to hit my face, and my, my hands are around the stove eye, and I have this thought, you know, it may be me. Uh, there may be something wrong with me. Uh, and I realize, oh, I'm delirious and I'm running a very high fever right now. Cold and hot is kind of a relative thing. And Whitney comes back in and uh, she's sweating. She goes, I think something's wrong with you. And I said, yes, uh, and I'm not feeling well. Um, hot and cold, relative thing, right? There's what's What's Cold in July is warm in December, right? What's warm in December is cold in July. What's, what's warm here in the spring is going to be kind of nice in the summer. It's relative. Righteousness isn't relative, okay? There's an absolute standard of what's good and right and holy, and that standard is God himself. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 107, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. God is holy. Psalm 99, verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. 
verse 4, the king in his might loves justice. This is Psalm 99, verse 4. Listen, you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness. In other words, righteousness and justice isn't some sort of vague concept out there. God himself is the one who establishes it and orders it and determines what is righteous, and God himself is righteousness. Sometimes I think we have this concept that like, out there in the universe, there's like a big set of rules that determine what's, what's right and wrong. And God is just really super-duper good at obeying all those rules. That's not how it works. God himself is, the, is righteousness. The rules flow out of his character, out of his being. And, and he can't help but be anything but completely and totally and thoroughly righteous. On Wednesday or maybe it's Thursday during lunch, the, the kids and I, we like to read these, these questions together. And uh, Whitney and I and the kids, we, we read these questions and, and talk about um, whatever these questions on the cards are. And one of the questions that we read on Thursday at lunch, it, it said this. It, it kind of set up a premise, kind of a foundation for the question. It said, you know, laws are there to help us know what's right and wrong. What rule would you like to change at your house? Or what rule would you like to change in the school that you go to? And so I asked the kids, I said, well, guys, what's wrong with the kind of the foundation of that question? And the kids go, I don't know, Dad, tell us. I said, well, here's the deal. I said, who deter- I said, does a law really tell us what's right and wrong? And, you know, the kids, know, since I asked the question, no, Dad, it doesn't. <laughs> I said, what determines what's right or wrong? Well, well God does. You see, it, rules don't tell us what's right and wrong. God doesn't just follow a bunch of rules and that makes him righteousness, righteous. No, God is righteousness. And because God is righteousness itself, everything that flows out of God is righteous and just and perfect. In fact, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, without sin, just and upright is he. Psalm 19, verse 8, The precepts of the Lord are, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Isaiah 45, 19 says, God says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. God is a God of complete and perfect righteousness. He's the standard by which everything is judged as either being in accordance with his character, therefore righteous, or in contradiction to his character, therefore unrighteous. And Jesus Christ, who 1 Peter 3.18 is talking about, is God the Son. And as God the Son, Jesus Christ, remember in the story of the incarnation, of the story of his, his birth, is becoming a human being, he became fully human while maintaining full deity, fully God and fully man. And therefore, Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous as well. Earlier, Peter would say this, he would say he committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. And therefore, we see in the early church them often referring to Jesus as the righteous one. 
Peter in Acts 3.14 says you deny the holy and righteous one. Stephen in Acts 7 says uh, they killed who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Paul would say in Acts 22 uh, to see the righteous one. They refer to Jesus Christ as the righteous, as the one who is completely righteous. It's a term used by Jesus Christ. So whenever Peter here in 1 Peter 3.18 says, says the righteous, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the perfect standard of all that is righteous and just and good. Now let's look at another term here in 1 Peter 3. The other term that we see here that I want us to meditate upon this morning is the unrighteous. He says the righteous for the unrighteous. And who's the unrighteous? The unrighteous, the unrighteous is you and and me. Everything that Jesus Christ is, you and I aren't. Christ is the perfect standard of what righteousness is, and you and I have fallen far short of that standard of absolute, complete righteousness. In fact, there's an amazing portion of Scripture. I encourage you to read it on your own sometime. Romans chapters 1 through the beginning of Romans chapter 3. Paul does an amazing job there of, of talking about the righteousness of God that God requires from all people. And he talks about how the gospel is, is the message of God's righteousness. And then he goes through in Romans chapters 1, 2, and part of Romans chapter 3, and he talks about how every person has fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, and every person can be characterized as unrighteous. He says, what about the pagan who's, who's never heard, the, the pagan who hasn't received God's special revelation? He says, no, that person is unrighteous. The, the moralist is unrighteous. The person who, who's a legalist and tries to obey all the rules fails to do that. The hypocrite is unrighteous. The, the, the Jew who tries to live according to God's law is unrighteous. And then in Romans chapter 3, he just obliterates all of us. and He says, look, you're all unrighteous. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard of perfections. In Romans 3.23, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if, if God is the absolute standard of righteousness, all of us fail to meet that standard of righteousness. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that our unrighteousness separates us from God. Our unrighteousness causes us to fail to be in a relationship with God. Isaiah 59, Isaiah would say in Isaiah 59 verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, Jesus Christ is the righteous. You and I are the unrighteous. And we instinctively understand that we are unrighteousness, that we are unrighteous. And I believe that in our heart of hearts, we understand that there is a separation between ourselves and God. We look at God and we look at the standard of perfection and we look at ourselves and we realize that we are unrighteous. 
that there is a, a, a chasm, a distance between God and ourselves. And you know what we try to do? You know what we try to do? We try to redefine righteous so that by some means we can take ourselves in this category of the unrighteous and we say, okay, yeah, I understand I'm not perfect, but let me redefine righteous so that somehow I can be in that category of righteous and and God can find me acceptable and and God and I can kind of be in the same sphere. And and yeah, maybe some other people aren't as good as as me, but but God is going to look at me and God's going to say, yeah, uh, this person, because of of these things, uh, they're in. They're going to be in this relationship with me. Yeah, God is righteous, and and he's separated from the unrighteous. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm in this category of the unrighteous. I'm over here in this unrighteous category, and I'm going to try to do all these things so that I move from the unrighteous category to the righteous category. I'm going to become a a really nice person. Move me over to the righteous category. I'm going to be a person that attends Bethany Community Church. Move me over to the righteous column. I'm going to take communion uh, twice a week. Move me over to the righteous category. I'm going to be nice to kittens. I'm going to help old people cross the street. I'm going to, to be baptized. I'm going to do all these things so that God can move me from the unrighteous category over to the righteous category. Paul describes this. In Romans chapter 10, in Romans chapter 10, Paul is, is talking about the Jews. And he says, as he's thinking about the Jews and their separation from God, he says in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear witness, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being, this is the key, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you see what he's saying? They didn't understand God's righteousness, and so what they tried to do is they tried to establish their own standard of righteousness. They, they tried to, to create this, this new category of righteousness, their own terms of righteousness, so that God could look at them and say, yep, yep, you're, you're good, you're righteous. Now, I'm going to share a little story with you, and I trust that as I, I share this uh, story with you, that those of you who are regular attenders and members are, are never going to tease me about the story. I know that no one's going to come up to me afterwards making fun of me. I, I feel great confidence in that. Um, ha. Um, so when I, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, the, uh, the Beach Boys kind of enjoyed a, a resurgence of popularity. Uh, some of you are thinking, were they ever unpopular? The Beach Boys, they're still with us. Um, but they, they're kind of like a, they're kind of, I think there was a resurgence to, of, of popularity. They appeared on the, the hit show Full House. You remember that? Um, it's, it's on reruns and stuff. You kids will love it. Uh, TGIF, Full House. Anyway, the Beach Boys experienced this resurgence in popularity. And my brother and myself and my brother's friend uh, decided what we were going to do is we were going to record some tribute songs to the Beach Boys. Now, none of us could sing, and none of us could play any musical instruments. But we compiled this tape, and then we played it. Wow, it was terrible. I mean, even our parents, you know, sometimes parents will listen to some, oh, hey, you guys did a great job. No, no. 
No, there was none of that. I mean, all of us looked and just kind of cringed as we listened to this thing. Um, I believe it's been destroyed, uh, this, this tape. It's, it, it was supposed to be these, these Beach Boys songs. We, you know, we took the, the record, we'd play it, and we'd sing along, and, all, and it didn't work. We didn't sound like the Beach Boys at all. It was pathetic. You know what else is pathetic? The idea that you and I, on our own, can somehow imitate God's righteousness. The idea that you and I, on our own, those of us who've fallen so short of God's standards, can somehow, by our own efforts, be included in the righteous. That somehow, on our own efforts, we can bridge that chasm between our, ourselves and God. It's pathetic. We can't. The righteous, the unrighteous, are us. The unrighteous are those of us who are completely ineffective in bridging that gap between God and ourselves. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with the entire phrase, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. What we're talking about here is the heart of the Easter story, the heart of the resurrection story. The idea that Jesus Christ, the righteous, died for the unrighteous. Very quickly, there's four things that I want to tell you about this idea that the righteous died for the unrighteous. Number one, the first thing that I want you to meditate upon this morning is this, Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered for you. Ephesians 5, 2 tells us that he, he gave himself up for us. What does that mean? What it means is that Jesus Christ desired a relationship with you. He desired to be reconciled with, with you. The righteous for the unrighteous, first of all, means that, that Christ suffered for you. The second thing that I think is important for us to think about as we think about the righteous for the unrighteous, the second thing is that Christ's death paid the penalty for your sin. Christ's death paid the penalty for your sin in Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. What does that mean? Well, an illustration that I like to use is this. Imagine this Bible is a book. That part's not hard. Imagine that this, this Bible is a book of, of your life. On the front, it, it says your name. It says it. Daniel Bennett right here on the front of this book. And imagine that this book contained every sin that I had ever committed in my entire life. Now, of course, it would be a much bigger book, right? But this is me, and, and this book, this book is a record of all my sin, and, it's, and what does it do? It separates me from God. Remember, we looked at Isaiah 59, we see that, that our sin separates us from God. And what does Isaiah say here in Isaiah 53? It says, what has God done? It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The, the righteous here, I'm the unrighteous, here's the righteous, and, and God has laid on the righteous the iniquity of us all. He's paid the penalty of our sin. Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. In John 1, 29, what, is, what does John the Baptist say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My first car was a 1976 Pontiac Ventura. 
Uh, when I got it, it was 18 years old. That car was solid, literally. Uh, now, uh, I may have shared this, uh, shared this several years ago, but uh, this, this car, this solid 1976 Pontiac Ventura, uh, my first car, solid as a rock. I mean, this thing, nothing was going to, to damage it. The car is still uh, alive today. Um, this car, the, one of the first things I did with it, I took it to church, and as I was, uh, as the blind spots in this car were um, basically everywhere, except there's like right outside the front window. Um, I, was, I was backing my 76 Pontiac Ventura out of the church parking spot and hit a Lexus. Yeah, that's what I said too. <laughs> the Ventura was fine. I mean, didn't even know. Oh, did something happen? Didn't feel anything. Um, the Lexus wasn't. I hit that Lexus like on the ideal spot. If you ever want to damage a Lexus, uh, I know where to do it. Um, I hit like, like, a, like between two panels, the most expensive panels on the car. Um, I wasn't even barely moving, but it just, boom. Okay. My parents sat down with me after the, the assessment had been done on, on uh, both cars. My car, zero dollars worth of damage. The other car, thousands of dollars of damage. My parents sat down and said, look, um, son, uh, you are poor. I said, I know. I said, you're never going to be able to pay this damage. If we turn this into the insurance, uh, it's going to be on your, your record, of the, and it's going to cost this much over the next four or five years. Here, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to pay it. I said, what? <laughs> we're going to pay it, the whole amount. We want you to learn mercy. We want you to learn about God's grace, and this is a way that we're going to teach you. I would love to learn about God's grace from you in this way. You know? And I tell the story every couple of years so they'll know that I'm still appreciative, right? You and I had a, a penalty that we had, we had no hope of being able to pay. The penalty for our sin was, was eternal death, separation from God and hell. We were in this category of the unrighteous, and nothing we could do could move ourselves to the category of the, of the righteous. Therefore, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ died for you, too. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. The third thing that we think about as we think about this, this phrase here is that there was and there is no other way to pay for your sins. There was no other method available to pay for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Acts 4.12, what does it tell us? There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Finally, the fourth thing I want you to think about as you think about this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous, the fourth thing that I want you to think about, and, and perhaps this is the, the sweetest thing of all, look again at the text in 1 Peter 3.18. Why did he do it? Why the righteous for the unrighteous? That next line, he did it that he might bring us to God. The purpose, number four, the purpose of the righteous dying for the unrighteous 
was to bring us to God. God wanted shalom. God wanted and God wants now, God desires now, reconciliation between you and him. He desires to be brought and you to be brought into relationship with him. The question for each of us is, are we going to repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins? You and I are the unrighteous. We had no hope of reconciliation with God by ourselves. Therefore, the righteous came for us to die in our place. As we close this morning, I want you to ask yourself the question, have I been reconciled to God? Have I been brought into peace with God? And and maybe this morning you say, you know what, I'm here because uh, I love my mom and dad and they come to this church and so I'm here this morning. Or I I love my kids and my kids come to this church so I came this morning. Or or, um, I thought I was was working out. I don't know what I'm doing in this room here. Um, I don't know why you're here this morning. But I want you to analyze your relationship with God. To say, is there peace between me and God? And if there's not peace between you and God, if you're not in relationship with God, let me encourage you to repent of your sins, to say, you know what, this, this life that I've been living, it's not a life that leads to, to eternal life. I, I'm no longer going to pursue this as, as God gives me the grace not to. This isn't my desire anymore. I'm, I'm intending to turn away from this, and instead I'm turning to the person of Jesus Christ, willing to make him the Lord and master of my life and placing my whole trust in him alone for my salvation. You say, well, well how does that work? How, how do, what does it mean to place my faith in Jesus? Is it some sort of work that I do? no. No, there's nothing you must do in order to earn salvation. It's a free gift that God offers, paid for by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that you and I can receive, a gift that you and I can receive by simply trusting in him alone. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do it this morning. If you have more questions about what that means, or if you do it and you want to talk to someone about it again, I'm going to ask some of our elders to to be up here at the front after service. I'm going to be out there uh, after service. Love to talk with you more about what that means. But could today, Easter Sunday 2012, the day that not only we observe the resurrection, the new life of our Lord Jesus Christ, but your new life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for the new life that we can have through faith in his name. We pray that you would give us the hope of reconciliation through him. We pray this in his name. Amen.